Okay, everyone, thank you for coming to our next session, uh, the, the 1110 session, uh, Paying for Higher Ed. We're going to discuss uh, tuition, state funding for higher education, and just basically how, how higher education is funded in this state. Um, I uh, want to say that this panel is sponsored by H&K Strategies, and those sponsors and donors underwrite this event. They play no role in determining the content or the panelists or the questions that I'll be asking today. Um, my name is Matthew Watkins. I'm the higher education reporter for the Texas Tribune. Um, a little bit of just quickly about this discussion. We're going to go for probably about 45 minutes um, with uh, moderated questions, and then we will uh, turn it over to you guys. If anyone has a question they'd like to ask near the end, I'll, I'll kind of make a comment uh, when we're reaching that point to begin you know, lining up or, or getting in front of the mics, and then we'll go to you to ask questions of the panelists. Uh, I will, let's now uh, allow me to introduce the panelists. I'll go down the row here. Um, to my immediate right is Dan Branch, a former state representative from the Dallas area. Before uh, stepping down in 2015, he was chairman of the House Higher, Edu Higher Education Committee and uh, noted uh, author of the, uh, what's known as the Tier 1 Universities Bill um, in the state. Um, to, to his right is Gregory Finves, pre president of the University of Texas at Austin, um, a trained engineer. He's a member of the National Academy of Engineering. We have... Um, Helen Giddings, a state representative from DeSoto, she serves as vice chairman of the Article III Subcommittee on Appropriations, which uh, deals with uh, education-related appropriations. And then uh, Kel Seliger, a, senator, a state senator from Amarillo, he's chairman of the Senate Higher Education Committee. And Robert Duncan, chancellor of the Texas Tech University System. Um, prior to that, taking that job, he spent 18 years in the Texas Senate and uh, was a partner at a law firm in Lubbock. And so thank you all for being here. Um, I really appreciate it. And I want to start off with Senator Seliger. Um, you know, given that we are approaching the session, I want to kind of talk a lot about, um, you know, what we're going to see in terms of higher education funding, tuition, things like that um, in 2017. And uh, something that may have given us an idea of what we might see was a uh, press conference earlier this year that I attended and you uh, were a speaker in, uh, along with our Lieutenant Governor, Dan Patrick, in which there was um, a lot of criticism of the universities in here for raising tuition over the last few years. And uh, a lot of different ideas, you know, suggested for, for things that might happen when the lawmakers convene again to, to uh, get that under control. Um, We'll go into some of, those, some of those ideas in a little bit, but I wanted to just ask broadly at first, should the, the higher ed administrators on this stage expect a, a, a tougher time this, this time around, a, a more scrutiny over, over their tuition costs and how they're funded uh, when, when the legislature convenes in 2017? More important than scrutiny is dialogue. Okay. We want to talk about, about where higher education is going and the fact that if it's going to be available to every young person in the state of Texas who wants to avail themselves of its benefits, it has to, one degree or another, be affordable. Not everybody can afford everything, no matter how much financial aid is there. Um, the context of, of the, uh, the press conference that you talk about was uh, both set-asides mm -hmm. and, and certainly tuition and things like that, and, and what people should expect in this session, in a very broadest sense, is a discussion of limitations. Mm 
Uh, oil and gas revenues alone to the state of Texas from oil and gas operations are going to be down 33% this year. Sales tax down 3% according to the comptroller. And so what we're really talking about, as well as those policy issues, are the realities of limitation. Sure. So, you know, one of the things that was mentioned at that conference, there was a, a big graph kind of showing the average tuition prices um, uh, at our state universities over the last, you know, 15 years or so. Um, president Finvez, uh, you don't, uh, we can't pin any of the blame of that for you. You've only been president for a little bit over a year, but the UT, <laughs> UT did raise its tuition uh, for, I believe, the students who entered uh, this, year. this year. What What is the situation at, at your university, at universities across the state that's leading to you guys to making that decision that you need to do that? Well, uh, the providing quality higher education, I think, is a three-part responsibility. Uh, one is uh, the university and uh, controlling our costs and providing the best quality as possible. As a public university, the state has a responsibility in providing access and affordability. And, uh, and then the students and their families. Uh, they, students obtain tremendous benefits from a UT education, I think education at any Texas public university. And there should be some cost paid into that. Uh, uh, we did raise our tuition about $300 a year. This was after five years of, of no tuition increase. Uh, when we look at our in-state resident uh, resident undergraduate tuition, uh, we, are often, we often compare ourselves to 14 public flagship universities around the country, Berkeley, North Carolina, Wisconsin, and so on. And we have either the 13th or the 14th lowest in-state undergraduate tuition of the, uh, the 14 universities we compare ourselves to. Uh, our tuition at UT Austin is less than several other public universities in Texas. And as we looked after five years of no tuition increase and a reduction in general revenue appropriation per student, uh, let me just put that in perspective. Uh, today, the general revenue appropriation to UT Austin per student is about $6,200, uh, excuse me, $5,800. 10 years ago, in counting for inflation, it was $6,200. So over the 10-year period, uh, the funding per student from general revenue has gone down. And so we felt to be able to have the faculty, to be able to have the classrooms, the facilities that are needed for, for modern education, uh, that a modest tuition increase was going to benefit our students and benefit the quality of the education. Matthew, it's important to make a point that there is a quantitative agency independent of, of, of institutions that rank the state of Texas 20th in affordability in the country. One thing I can guarantee you in terms of quality, availability, and diversity Texas is way, way higher than 20th. And so that's, I think, an important perspective. Mm -hmm. Whenever tuition comes up, and especially the idea of whether the legislature should get involved with either regulating tuition or limiting tuition growth, we go back to 2003 when the legislature made the decision to deregulate tuition. You know, it, it used to be set by the legislature. Now it's set by the universities or the University Board of Regents, University System Board of Regents. Chancellor Duncan, you were, you were there at that time. Can you help us understand why that decision was made and, and what people were thinking when they were doing it back then? Well, in, in 2003, we were looking at a $10 billion, billion with a B, shortfall in the state budget. And at the same time, we were also seeing a significant and huge increase in Medicaid expenses. Medicaid, the caseload growth was, was, was really actually eating up the state budget. 
And so all of us, many of us had questions about whether it would be wise to do that. I think it was a really hotly debated subject in both the House and the Senate. At the end of the day, when I looked at it, I could see I had the, I don't know if it was a privilege or the, uh, what it was to serve on the Article Two, which is Medicaid working group, as well as on the higher ed working group uh, on those things. And you could see that higher education was a, is fully discretionary in the legislature, whereas Medicaid is, is an entitlement. And you can see that where the balance is going to shift more to health care in the state budget and away from education. And so for Texas to maintain its national prominence and competitiveness, uh, I think we all looked at it and said, this is the only way we're going to be able to do this. And so at that point in time, deregulation uh, started. And I think, quite frankly, uh, universities in Texas and the boards of regents have been conservative in the way that they've moved up. Uh, then you go again to 2011, uh, when we had even a worse shortfall of 27 billion, and higher education took significant cuts. And if you look at the rate of uh, the weighted th that we pay on the formula for the weighted semester credit hour, it's actually not. We haven't caught up yet with 2009. So. And, and so, you, as you see, that is a way, tuition uh, dereg is a way to allow us to remain competitive nationally. I think Texans want us to be nationally competitive. We want to be nationally competitive to be able to recruit great faculty. Governor Abbott has made that a priority. Uh, as well as we want to maintain the opportunity for our great students. We don't want to export our great students to other universities. And so I think uh, that all plays in, and those were the factors that I think we all considered and debated pretty heavily in 2003 and continue to debate that as we, and I think there's been a, a robust discussion about that ever since 2003, about whether it's wise, and I think it's put pressure on the boards of regents to uh, be conservative uh, in the way they uh, increase uh, their, their tuition. I was also uh, here in 2003. Um, Chancellor Duncan and I were, in fact, classmates coming into the Texas House. And as he says, this is an issue that was very hotly debated. I came up on the other side of uh, saying, let's not deregulate uh, uh, tuition, uh, because I felt that uh, without the legislature's oversight, tuition might rise too quickly, and also uh, it might allow us, as the state of Texas, to decrease our funding and our commitment to education, which, in, in my opinion, is exactly what has happened. I mean, somebody has to pay. Either the state puts the funding there or tuition has to go up. And I believe that somehow, uh, looking forward, there has to be some relationship between the two. I don't think we can uh, sort of uh, turn this big ship around uh, now, but I think we need to start to look at if the state's uh, increase in funding goes up, what effect does that have on tuition? I, I think those two have to play in the same, in the, in the same space. Mm -hmm. Well, if, if, if I'm a representative, if I'm a member of the Texas legislature, this seems like a good deal to me because if, if like you said, we're in a situation where there are other budget press pressures and it's going to be hard to keep up with the state funding in the past, then when the tuition goes up, you're not the one who gets blamed for it. Is that... Is that what happened? Well, I, I was also there, so, uh, <laughs> and uh, I was new. I wasn't as seasoned as the chancellor and uh, my good friend Helen, the representative. 
But uh, I looked at it, and in fact, the deregulation was really a regent regulation. In fact, many of our graduate schools were, the, the tuition was being set by the regents already. And there was this, all, this notion that if you're going to give regents responsibility, regents appointed by a governor, and therefore there's still, I would say, uh, there's still legislative oversight because you can always change the law. But, uh, and, I and I agree with the chancellor on the pressure that's been put to bear on regents. But a governor's got a responsibility of, of, of appointing responsible regents. But then ultimately, they're given authority over all kinds of issues, uh, schools that have uh, permanent university funding. Uh, so so it, it made sense to me from a managerial standpoint and, and accountability standpoint. And uh, in fact, you can look at the statistics and the rate of increase the, the decade before by the legislature was greater than the rate of increase in uh, uh, periods afterward. There, there was inflation of, of the tuition, but again, we are below the median average in, in, in the U.S. And so, um, to me, it just it, to me it made good efficiency, good accountability, good sense. But it ultimately comes down to you still got to have a robust legislative voters say you, say, you have to have governors who uh, appoint responsible regents. And then you have to have the management leadership of, of higher education that's trying to be as efficient as possible. Mm -hmm. I also think Representative Giddings would agree with me. If we went and polled those people in our districts, 165,000, no, 675,000 in, no, it's 165,000 in her case, 811,000, and said, would you like the state to regulate the tuition that your kids are going to pay, that you as parents are going to have to pay? The overwhelming response is, yes, that's your responsibility. We have to weigh that against what it takes to run a university and a university system and, and things like that. And so it can be, it's, it's not all black and white. It's, it's not, but, but uh, I think we can never forget the balance. Uh, certainly, if the state lowers its funding to higher ed, tuition is going to go up. Mm -hmm. And so I, I think somewhere uh, there might be of the possibility and room for some legislation to talk about how you link those two together. There's, there's another factor involved in this, and, and tuition is, is more complicated and complex than the, when you just talk about we're tuition going up and cost and higher ed going up. But in Texas, we've been fairly generous in exemptions and waivers, and, and currently, annually, there's about 700, a little over 700 million in uh, tuition exemptions and waivers. And so those are, you know, those are actually absorbed, those are costs that are absorbed by the universities and community colleges. And I think for, for universities alone, it's about 583 million. Uh, and so uh, I think that's another factor that uh, complicates the discussion on tuition, uh, because what happens is, is you know, the subsidies, some, something is subsidizing those waivers and exemptions and part of it is tuition that is paid by, by other students. And, and when we say that, let's, let's be frank, in the last two years in the last legislature, we increased formula funding to those universities by about, just about a billion and a half dollars. We increased uh, Texas grants by, uh, by several millions of dollars. And so overall funding from the state through appropriation is three quarters of a billion dollars. It's not a system that's being choked down. The question is, but this is true of every organization or agency that gets funding from general appropriation. Is it enough or not? Now, all we ever hear is no, but. Yeah. Well, I think, though, I, I will say this, and on behalf of, I know I had a meeting with 
chancellors the other day, and I think we all agree that that the legislature last session did an outstanding job with higher education. Uh, you, you guys, uh, I think y'all focused on the issues that were important, and you funded the areas that make us more competitive, and I think also gave us the ability to keep tuition pressures down. And, and I know higher ed appreciates what y'all did. And, and, and I appreciate that. And, and what it says is simply is nobody questions the value to the future of the state of Texas in higher education, which is one of the reasons that, that we place such tremendous value on the community college system. And I think those of us, and I think all of us, um, you know, I certainly enjoyed working with uh, both uh, uh, Dan and, and Robert, and I think on higher education and, and Senator Seliger. You could, you could, although he was in that other house, but uh, <laughs> in the other chamber, I, I think you could call all of us advocates for higher ed. Uh, I, I think we do have to continuously be concerned about the issue that came up earlier, uh, which is accessibility and affordability. And while we offer Texas grants for 85% of the students that we believe are eligible for uh, the grants uh, in our state, uh, those grants are not enough to cover tuition for a year. Uh, I guess we're about $4,700, $4,600, somewhere in there. And I guess our average tuition in this state is probably somewhere around $8,000. And, and a little bit above that. So uh, we're doing uh, what we can. I, can. I can tell you that as folks up here have said, this, this is a real high priority for us. And I am particularly concerned about it uh, when we talk about our 60-30 plan. Uh, because if we want 60% of Texans who are between the ages of 24 and 35 to have uh, some college uh, by 2030, we have to realize where our capacity is to improve. And it lies in the area of poor and minority students. And if we lock those people out, we can throw 60-30 out of the window because it's not going to happen. Well Go ahead. I, just, I think that's, you, 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 these are important debates about affordability, but the reason they're important and, and, the, and the price and the cost and the way to fund and the balance, but the reason they're important, Matthew, is because we, we have a freight train coming at us, and if we don't have an educated workforce, which is defined by the world standards as either having a bachelor's degree, an associate's degree, or a certificate, the, the acronym BAC, if we don't have a workforce that indicates uh, an education level, then we're going to lose all kinds of high-skilled jobs, and uh, we're not going to have a strong economy. We're going to have as much revenue coming into the legislature can then prioritize and appropriate. So to me, higher education gets squeezed between, as, as the chancellor mentioned, between health care and public ed, because those systems are sort of baked into uh, the, the general law. Higher ed's more uh, discretionary within the Appropriations and Senate Finance Committee. And so what happens, it tends to get squeezed out, particularly when you have lean times. And, and what we're then going to do is shortchange our ability to have this educated workforce, which is the real issue of higher education, is the sustaining uh, the golden goose that's Texas and that we continue to have human capital that, that makes this place a really fun place to be besides our mild summers. Mm -hmm. <laughs>
Well, let, let me ask this because when you, whenever you start talking about the the cost of tuition and how it's grown over not just years but decades, and you'll you'll talk to someone who went to UT, you know, a, a, a very long time ago, and they'll talk about how when they were students they they could work a summer job and that would pay for their entire tuition bill through the school year, but during those times there were a lot fewer people going to college and college maybe wasn't accessible to all different kind of people in our society. Now we have a state plan, right, where we want 60% of our students, of our young people to have some kind of certificate degree or anything like that by 2035. Excuse me, 2030. Is it even, you know, and with all these other competing pressures, we have transportation needs in the state, we have a CPS system that needs some work. We have all these other things that are, are struggling. Is it realistic to ask the legislature to send, to fund higher ed like they did on a per student basis back when there were much fewer students going to this school? Well, I, I'll just jump say it, it, what that uh, 60 by 30 plan really means, I, I think an easier way to think about it is we have to have an 8% increase in our, in our younger uh, uh, quartile uh, of the workforce having some, some sort of uh, higher ed credential. And so uh, that's, a, that's a, uh, a, a stiff uh, challenge for us. And so um, to me at some point the issue is, is, this, is higher ed an, a priority in order to help us have the revenue, the tax base to pay for infrastructure uh, which I think education is a form of infrastructure and a knowledge economy, but roads and our healthcare system and our public education system and all the, th our water system, all these things that are important. Um, you know, I think that the challenge is that we not shortchange the, 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 the goose that will give us these other things. Mm -hmm. Realism has nothing to do with the ask. <laughs> Realism raises its ugly head in the appropriations process. When, when Ellen and I go in in, in January, the truth is 40% of the budget will go to public education, another 30% to uh, health care, at least 30% of the budget to, to, to work with and massage. And, and that's where reality sinks in. Let me ask this a similar question, but in a different, from a different angle, which is that if I go to, if I'm an 18-year-old and I decide I'm going to go to UT, but maybe don't have the resources to pay for it, and I take out $30,000 in student loans over the, over the course of my college career, um, which, you know, that's, that's less than a Ford F-150. And that Ford F-150 is going to lose its value as soon as I drive it off the lot. That $30,000 is going to be, you know, that, or that college degree from UT, a, a great public school, is going to benefit me financially for the rest of my life. Is, on top of that, we've got you, you know there are a lot of people who want to go to UT who can't get in because so many people want to go. Is, is college really too expensive and is, is the market suggesting otherwise? Uh, well, so we have, um, we have about 47,000 applications uh, for this year and uh, we just admitted our largest freshman class ever, 8,700 freshmen, more than 1,000 new freshmen this year than, than in the previous year. And uh, we've graduated 10,000 bachelor's degrees in 2016, or we will by, by the end of the calendar year. 
So we are, uh, feel that we're trying to do our part, maintaining the quality. We're in a very competitive environment for the, for the best faculty, for the research, for the best students, uh, trying to maintain that quality at a, at a reasonable cost. Half the students at UT, half the undergraduate students at UT graduate with no debt. Mm -hmm. So if you use that as a measure, it's affordable to them. We're worried about the half the students that, that do have to take on debt. And the average undergraduate debt for a student that takes on debt is about 27,000, so not, not, not quite 30, which is a little bit above the national norm. But as you, as you mentioned, Matthew, there's tremendous value there. Uh, the average lifetime earnings for a UT graduate is over half a million. For many of uh, the majors, it's over a million dollars of lifetime earning. So it doesn't seem to be, uh, it seems to be students and their families are making rational economic decisions. Yeah. Take out a $27,000 loan for the potential of a, a large increase in their lifetime earnings. Mm -hmm. And as I talk to individual students uh, that are getting ready to graduate, they're very optimistic. Talk to our alumni, they're so proud of the education they got here and what it enabled them to do and enabled them to achieve. So I believe there is a really great value proposition for a UT education. And we do need to work on the affordability, and that's where the financial aid that comes from federal resources. I was just at the U.S. Capitol earlier this week arguing for uh, federal uh, Pell Grant uh, increases and year-round Pell Grants, which are very important for students to complete on time. Uh, the state, in terms of Texas grants, and I'll bring up the issue, the, the so-called set-asides are very important in providing institutional financial aid uh, for students from uh, the lower quartile of family incomes. Mm -hmm. as, as I just say, as, as also getting someone out in a timely fashion, and UT has done much better of uh, raising it, what, from about 51% yeah, four I, years? Can I use this as an intro to my advertisement? Okay. okay so, right. <laughs> are, you, are you to get to six? You're not quite to 70. We're, we're, uh, so uh, we just uh, released our latest uh, statistics. So our four-year graduation rate now is just a little over 60%. It's the highest it's ever been, highest in the state of Texas. And if you go back 10 years, it was just about 50%. This has been a remarkable increase in uh, graduation rates. But what we're very proud of is that you go we, back four years. It was at 51, it was, 52%. It was, yeah, 54%, I yeah. think, four years ago. But it, it, what's really remarkable, what I feel is remarkable about the job our faculty have done and our staff and our advisors is you see the biggest increase in the students coming from the lowest socioeconomic categories, the biggest increases in students who are first in their family to go to college. And so we are working very hard in making sure that students are successful here and graduate in four years, which is the best way to control the total cost of education. The inescapable fact that, that sort of comes out of your question is that that hypothetical student who's a good student, maybe first generation of their family, uh, applies and gets into, let's use Texas Tech, because I think the annual tuition and fees alone at Texas Tech is probably eleven or $12,000. Works very well in the rest of the country. With Texas grants, which were increased by $62 million last year, with other uh, scholarships that the university will give, there are still going to be families and students for whom that's a lot of money. You take those Texas grants, and, and in President Femme's recent State of the University, I think the university has dedicated 15 additional million dollars from university funds mm -hmm. to make it more accessible. Everything is always, there's always going to be somebody who can't afford the price tag. How can we make it available to the most people? One of the things that people don't talk as much about 
is the impact of dual credit in early college high school and young people. In early college high schools, kids can graduate from high school with a high school diploma and an associate's degree from a community college. That's two years paid for. Now, does that mean that our kids are going to say they no longer want a fifth or sixth year in college? No. It, it won't do away with that. Mm -hmm. but, but there's the reality. So there's a lot of very positive things going on. But it doesn't mean that colleges and universities are not going to be expensive to a good, a good part of, of our populace. I think, it just doesn't. I, I well, think you know, you mentioned the debt load earlier. And uh, certainly, I, I think you're doing very well. Uh, but the fact of the matter is, in the state of Texas, we have colleges where the average uh, debt load on the graduating student is north of $40,000. Uh, you are going to be a teacher or a police officer, and you're going to come out of college uh, and going to your job making $55,000 a year. Uh, your debt load is north of 40. Uh, there's something about that that puts a shadow, I think, uh, over that person's life as they begin. And so I'm happy to see, uh, in, in terms of the commissioner's goal, and, and I don't know as much about this as, as I'm going to know about it, is that one of our goals has to be that there has to be some relationship, or there ought to be some relationship, between the student's debt load and what their uh, job is going to pay. And I, and I think uh, that makes uh, an awful lot of, uh, of sense. And I, and I have to say something right here, if I might, about one of the things that I've never been comfortable with in appropriations and in the legislature is how do we place value on those universities that take students who are really struggling and would not otherwise have a college education? How do I put a value on what they do? I just recently went to uh, the graduation, I guess it was in May, uh, for Texas Southern, and, and there was a young woman there who was uh, a single mother with uh, three kids and was graduating that day. And I got to tell you, I felt more pride in that than I did, you know, like, you know, my uh, grandson who was 21. You know, obviously I felt pride in my grandson, but, <laughs> but I'm, just, I'm just saying that somehow there has to be a value on taking that woman and putting her in a position where she can be a productive, tax-paying uh, citizen instead of being, uh, you know, uh, somebody who is is in various programs that that we all uh, pay for. So, uh, you know, how we do that, I don't know. If we if we if we look at uh, Texas Southern, you know, uh, one in in three of of their students, um, you know. It, is, is really financially uh, disadvantaged. 10% uh, of their, their population, their student population, their families make less than $10,000 a year. Again, I say, and I've always said, in public education and in higher education, it, it's those people at the floor. If we are going to really realize our full potential as a competitive state, globally and otherwise, we are going to have to find ways to raise the floor while we're yet raising the ceiling.
in recent testimony in our committee in higher education, I forget the institutions represented, but, but, but these individuals can tell us. We're seeing average debt in a lot of institutions. I think tech may be one of them. That debt is about $21,000. And one of our goals should be have kids get out of, of school with as little debt as possible. But there's, there's, there's some things that we have to consider. Not long after your students and your students get out of college, they're going to have some debt. And it's going to be a house. It's going to be a car, quite likely an F-150, <laughs> and a recreational vehicle, and a bass boat, and the debt that is inexplicable to, to most of us, credit card debt. Mm. The one debt that pays dividends for a lifetime is that invested in a college education. Here, here. The statistic is about a million dollars over a student's working life with a, with a bachelor's degree. And, and that, that debt exists as part of a sort of a proportion perspective as well. It's a great investment. I, 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 I don't want to put a lot of it in context to the fact that I think Texas is unlike other states. When we talk about the cost of education and, and a lot of different things. We're a very diverse state, geographically, uh, demographically, and uh, we do a, a really good job of strategic planning. Through the coordinating board, we're closing the gaps, uh, which we've just kind of come to the end of, where the legislature, I know, always put pressure on the higher ed institutions to meet those strategies and make those strategies as priorities. And now with the new uh, 60 by 30, uh, I think uh, that strategic plan recognizes the diversity uh, of our state and the different ways to deliver higher education that we have. And how many, third, we have over 30 general academic institutions, 50 community colleges, and uh, that didn't just happen. It is a part of a strategic plan that, uh, that the legislature actually has been, I think, very uh, uh, committed to uh, over the last 20 some odd years. So I think when we talk about these issues, we always have to go back to the fact that there is a strategic plan and the, the cost uh, of, of reaching the goals of that strategic plan are going to have to be shared in different ways. Philanthropy is another way. Uh, mm -hmm. We have one institution, Angelo State University, has a $130 million endowment. Uh, it's a small university, but if you go there and don't have a car scholarship, uh, you're one of the you're probably minority in that school because they are able to really uh, provide a, a a good opportunity for students. And I think philanthropy is another role of financing higher education that all of our institutions I think are doing a lot better job at uh, and have been in the last 15 or 20 years. And and we work together on the tier one effort that we got another somewhere around 300 million private dollars that came in to match with public funding to get over 700 million now to date on, on uh, focused on research. So I agree, I, and I would say, Helen, on your point, there is a part of, of the, uh, the uh, uh, 60 by 30 new plan has a goal related to student debt and limiting it to a proportion sure. of someone's income. So I think that's a, a recognition of the importance of that, but there's more focus on the completion. There's not a specific goal on enrollment. And you know, when John Conley was governor in, in, in the 60s and creating the co-board, the focus was on getting more people to enroll. And today, the focus needs to be, in my view, more getting more people to complete. The, 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 uh, the 60 by 30 actually does that. Um, and uh, to me, if you get people to complete on time, you're, actually, you're really saving on the affordability piece. That's why I've been pushing on 
timely uh, graduations and, and also then turns over that scholarship money, those Texas grants, for the next student. So to me, uh, if you really want to uh, reduce tuition, try to get people out in as timely fashion as possible. Well, I, I think you hit up on uh, something, uh, Dan, that I, I really believe in. I, I don't have the numbers here with me, but I, I think that the average attempted um, hours uh, in, in, in our public universities to get a degree that is around 120 hours, I think the average attempted hour may be somewhere around 150. That's right. and, and so that's an expensive proposition. And one of the things that I was just talking to the Chancellor Duncan about, that I hope that we can find a way to get universities to do better, is to sort of have a navigator or a student success person in, in, in universities. Because you have some students who just get it and they just know exactly what they have to do and when they have to do it. And you have other students who don't. And those are the students, I think, who just kind of linger around and rack up all these hours. And I don't think, and, and you know, and I found that out firsthand going to these universities uh, over the past year, that students absolutely get lost. They can't get uh, the, the academic advising that they need. They can't figure out how to change um, ma uh, majors in the most efficient kind of way. So, uh, you know, uh, Chancellor Duncan, I, I know y'all don't want any more regulation, but if I can figure out a way to, to implement or, or to pass some legislation that requires each of our universities to at least have a plan that says this is what we do. Well, well, as a parent, I'm sorry, with a, and, and I can't answer for you even though I'm speaking specifically about University of Texas. As a, as a parent, a lot of those academic counseling things exist. And when those kids need counseling, they go to their roommate's boyfriend and ask what they ought to do. You, you can do whatever you want to do, but those young people have got to go access it. And, and there's a lot of those facilities available in both this, this university and in the system. Yeah. Well, we've been developing exactly those kind of models over Thank this you. past uh, five years. And let me just give you some statistics and without going through the description of the models. Uh, all our data shows the uh, the best predictor of a student graduating from UT Austin is do they come back for the second year? Do they persist after the first year? Our freshman persistence right now is 94%. And that's almost a private school level. But what's also really... Harvard's is only 98. Well, well, you know, there is a ceiling effect. There is a ceiling effect. But we've focused on the students who are first in their family to go to college. And that freshman persistence rate has gone up from being in the 70% to being 90%. Exactly with these kind of programs, these guidance programs, additional counseling, support services, internships, which are really important for students who are often first in their family to go to college, first time they've ever held a job. But the internship and the work study has something to do with their studies, so they see that it's relevant. Well, as I said, uh, you know, having uh, three grandsons in college, I've spent a lot of time on college campuses and uh, a maturity uh, has to do has a lot to do with it uh, you know one grant's done I won't say which one in case y'all are listening is uh, <laughs> totally mature nobody has to tell him anything anywhere he gets all that stuff 
others. And so we're not talking about kids who, whose parents did not go to college here at UT. Uh, we're talking about kids whose parents did go to college. But as I said to the chancellor, you know, one of them actually was trying to see his academic advisor, and he kept calling me and said, I've been here four times. I had an appointment four times. I said, I don't believe you. The next time you go in there, you, you give the phone to the receptionist, and I want the receptionist to tell me, you're there, you have an appointment, your person that you're supposed to see is not there. And guess what? It happened. Uh, and, you know, you, you, so I'm just saying that maybe that student ought to be more mature, uh, but in the end, it's to our advantage. To get them out to get them out, yeah. and I think we can do better. I talked sure. to a university president the other day who uh, really thrilled me to death. You've got a program, I'm really thrilled. This university president told me he had caseworkers, you know. Uh, this caseworker had 200 students or however many, and you know, probably 180 of those would never need any help. But the other 20 who did, know, they knew where to go, and they were definitely going to get some help. I think that's a cost. That's, that's a cost driver in, in, in education today. I want to go back uh, briefly to the question of legislative involvement and how universities set their tuition. Um, you know, we hear about how back in 2003 when tuition was deregulated, you know, a main driver, if not the single main driver for doing that was a sense that um, short term and maybe even long term, the, the legislature wasn't going to be in a position to fund on a per student basis as it was going to before. We go through this, these um, uh, 15, uh, 13 years of, of deregulation, tuition goes up, and now we are hearing a strong kind of groundswell about concerns about tuition being raised. But if we if we have already kind of reached a point where the legislature is, is it has acknowledged and made a decision based on the idea that it can't fund like it on a per student basis like it did, and now we're getting to a point where what colleges were allowed to do to make up for that, which was raised tuition, is people are arguing needs to be taken off the table. Do people like you worry that you're going to be running out of options for how you do pay for higher ed in, over the next few decades. Uh, well, I worry about that every day uh, with uh, looking at the, uh, the pressures to provide quality, pressures to compete nationally, as, uh, as uh, Dan has talked about, and, uh, and uh, Chancellor Duncan. Um, we're, we need to look at uh, ways that we can, we can have that revenue. Uh, philanthropy certainly is an important role. Uh, we've been working hard at that at UT Austin as, as every other university. Uh, we're, we're looking at how we can save cost, and not just the revenue side, but what's the cost side. So that's something that I worry about every single day. But one of the ways out is what we've just been talking about, is if, you, if you're not going to raise tuition and you're, and you're not going to fund more from the state, well, where do you go? One of the ways is be more efficient, and that's not just in cutting this, you know, the administrative costs, which always need to be scrubbed and looked at. But, but also, if you're more efficient with your throughput of the students, then those scholarships can uh, you know, benefit others. So again, uh, moving the graduation rate needle from the low 50s to north of, of 60 and, and headed to 70, headed to 70 um, we need more and more universities uh, showing that sort of dramatic increase. And then we're going to have a lot of savings. Over uh, the last 12 years, 
if you take all of the funding, both from tuition fees and, and appropriation, that is increased by 30%. Costs have increased substantially more than that. Nobody asked the legislature to help control costs. That being said, if you just take one item, campus security, oh, given revelations over the last year and developments over the last year, if you look at that one cost, which is absolutely inescapable, and what's that, that's costing universities, certainly the two represented here, or the three represented here, that's a substantial cost that nobody can do anything about, and it must be expended. There, there, there's another element, too, that goes along with that, is we haven't talked about growth. Growth is a huge issue, and just to fund growth every session, the legislature has to struggle. And in the last session, uh, in, you know, it was, it was a, our state is growing, and the each of our universities is growing. I think an issue and a debate that we probably ought to have in Texas is how, how big should a university be? And, and if you look at that uh, with over 30 general academic institutions and 50 community colleges, at some point in time, you know, that discussion, when is it efficient, when is it not? But growth is the thing that I think drives the budgets as much as anything else. And uh, it's a very difficult thing for the legislature to keep up with. One other aspect in this, um, you walk around this campus, you walk around the Texas Tech campus, they're, it's, they're beautiful campuses with great, very nice buildings, research labs. The, there are very well compensated employees and administrators on those campuses. Is it, would it be, is, is there still room to cut? Is there, are there still efficiencies to be found at your schools? Well, let me talk about the, the buildings. Uh, we've got thousands of Texas Tribune Festival participants walking around our beautiful campus, and we're love to have you here. And there's a lot of construction going on. Mm -hmm. Most of the construction is really uh, filling in depreciated buildings. Um, so as you know, I worked on a new engineering building. Yeah. Well, the building we tore down was over 50 years old, and it was designed in uh, the late 50s, built in the early 60s. The classrooms had chairs bolted to the floor with little armrests so students could put their notepads on and handwrite notes. And this was supposed to be a modern engineering building in a top 10 electrical engineering department. So what does it tell to our students and to our faculty? Uh, we're trying to give you a education that's gonna make you an innovator, uh, create new industries in Texas, and you're in a classroom that has chairs bolted to the floor. So we tore the building down and we're building a modern, flexible facility that'll last uh, well over 50 years and be adaptable as teaching changes, as research changes, and as technology changes. So that's the kind of construction we need to do or we're gonna be stuck in the 1960s. It is a very competitive enterprise. And, and if, if the only educational system in the country were, were higher education in Texas, that would be one thing. But to compete with the very best students, who are going to be some of the most productive and highest yield, if you care to look at them that way, citizens, um, we are not necessarily setting those standards. It's set by, take your pick, be the University of Oklahoma, University of Wisconsin, University of California. Uh, it's a competitive enterprise, and we just simply, we must compete. So um, we're kind of at that point where if anyone wants to ask a question, please uh, step up and ask. And 
<laughs> Looks like we've got a lot. So, popular, popular I, subject. I was going to ask while people got up about uh, tuition set-asides, but it looks uh -huh. like y'all are off the hook okay. because uh, we got a nice long line here. We'll get together. But maybe one of them will. We'll get together later. I did, I did bring There's it up. There's obviously no interest in higher education. <laughs> That's right. Go ahead. Good morning. Uh, I'm Travis Rendell with the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, and I was really heartened to hear, as the discussion wore on, the subject of cost. Um, because so often it ends up being about revenue and not about spending. And this issue of efficiencies is, is a tough one. But I guess the, for me the fundamental question is, is the business model itself even sustainable? Um, the way that we've done this with, with the tuition and the state and with the cost structures that we have in universities and colleges, are we going to be able to continue playing this movie over and over, or are we going to have to look at some fundamentally different ways of delivering higher ed? And to what extent is that conversation going on in the legislature, the boards of regents, or the coordinating board? That's a great question. I want to just add one thing on top of what you said, which is you were just talking about the competition among the states, mm -hmm. right? And so if, if Texas wants to try a new innovative model to fund streets, we're not going to be in trouble because Louisiana or New York or California aren't trying that. But in Texas, you run that risk, right, of falling behind the other states and running behind. And, and I think, in a way, I think you all are working on this because probably right now, and certainly during the, the, the week, there are students in community colleges and institutions all over the country that are going online and getting professors from the University of Texas and Texas Tech in a real-time, interactive distance learning thing that costs a fraction of attending the university. And it's going to increase the availability of, of, of that knowledge base many, many fold. And that's just one of the things that's gonna be very 21st century response to this sort of thing. We're, you know, there's, innovation is important. I, I know there are uh, innovative models, and I think what Senator Selger, what he's talking about is exactly on point, is the fact that there are other delivery methods that lower the cost. I'll tell you one thing that does drive cost is ratings, rating systems. Everyone looks at these, like the U.S. News and World Report, and, you know, your metrics, it, each one of those metrics to raise yourself in those metrics costs money. Some of them are good, some of them may not be so relevant, but at the same time, we, we, we struggle, I think all of us struggle with wanting our ratings to be higher, and to do that, you have to, you have to spend money in those areas. But at the end of the day, I do think that uh, there's always a case for innovation, new models, uh, new uh, ways to deliver, and I think all of our institutions have done a pretty good job over the years of trying to move into things, but I do think it's a challenge that we all have in our institutions to do to a better job. I know our Health Science Center has done a great job of developing a, a family medicine accelerated track that moves students through uh, medical school in three years, and, and compressing all of that. I know we're looking at a college of veterinary medicine that has a new innovative model, model that does not use a traditional hospital that lowers the cost uh, to the student in delivering, in delivering veterinary medical education. So uh, those are the kinds of innovations I think that we need to be uh, encouraging and I think we need to be pursuing uh, in as, as higher education. And I think it's, the legislature needs to incent it, but I think it's up to us. We, we are in the, we are the, uh, have the ability to design those and pioneer new ways to make it more affordable but also more effective. Can I just add one thing to that? I agree completely, and we're doing a lot here. I won't enumerate it. But on the policy side, 
uh, I think the legislature could do more in the finance system to incentivize innovation. The semester formula funding system actually does inhibit some innovations because you're worried about how that will affect the semester credit hour generation. So I, on the policy side, there could be more to incentivize innovation. And here's the problem. You can come up with a great program, and you need to move forward with it, but you have a hard time predicting what the funding model right. is going to be right. a biennium ahead of time. And that's, that's right. a built-in yeah. flaw in the system that I don't think that's that right. we can, I don't know that there's a remedy for it. It's yeah. a fact of life. And I agree, and that, that's why I was pushing for outcomes, because that is something you can manage to, and that incentivizes the, the, the result we want. But I, I would agree with what people have said, that innovations, the great thing about the, the IT revolution is uh, I think we're going to find cost savings, and uh, that'll help the model. But at the end of the day, a public university, you're going to have, you know, legislative or taxpayer support, you're going to have tuition, family, student support, you, ha you have other tools of the federal government, but uh, the efficiency it, uh, along with technology, innovation, uh, you know, Arizona State's, you, you know, got a huge population now, what are they now, 80,000 80, students, and so this whole issue of how large should a fine public university be is, is uh, sort of being debated because of the innovations of technology. So we've got a lot of uh, questions. We'll try to get to as many as we can in about uh, eight minutes. Uh, but if we can, try to <laughs> condense those answers so we can get as many as we can. My name is Ray Canham. I'm an administrator at a community college, Richland College in Dallas. Um, I've spent uh, 35 years at that college. About 10 years before that, I taught at a university. So my question regards the cost of undergraduate education to uh, the students who come to you. And the question is really, to what extent are they paying for their undergraduate education as against to running the cost of the university for research, uh, for um, graduate student uh, instruction, for all the other things that you do? Uh, I ask because uh, we teach um, classes of, uh, in science, own area, 28 students taught by an uh, instructor with a doctorate and often postdoctoral experience. He teaches the labs um, at a university. I'm not sure what this room is used for, but I taught in a room larger than this to 500 students uh, when I was a university faculty member and didn't see any of them individually. So mm -hmm. the cost uh, would seem to be disproportionate at a university uh, given the attention the typical undergraduate gets in his uh, instruction. Would you address that? Sure. Well, I think, uh, I think our, if you polled our students, they are getting a great education. They have uh, terrific relationships with their professors and with the graduate students. That's part of the education system here. But we do have a dual mission as a research university. It is research and education. And that provides tremendous value to undergraduate students. They have undergraduate research opportunities. We're increasing the experiential learning opportunities for students in many of the degree programs. Our goal is to have, have it for all the degree programs. And that's a, that's a unique type of education that a student gets at UT Austin as a research university. Howdy. Um, as, a, as a student in one of your Texas universities, I'm a senior. My name is Joseph Hood at Texas A&M University. And I had a question kind of echoing a lot of the questions that are being asked about um, the spending at higher education. Um, since 2003, since deregulation, tuition has actually doubled in the state of Texas on average, whereas state funding has only decreased by 23%. And so I, I struggle at times to really understand why is it that the argument is, well, state funding is decreasing, so we have to raise tuition. Um, because that does harm students, especially those students who do drop out, because when those students drop out, 
Um, they still have that debt, but they don't have a degree to show for it to actually pay for that degree. And so my question to you got to each of you, and thank you for your service to the state, is how can we address that cost issue? Because I think that there is a legitimate issue with the cost, and I'm, I'm experiencing that as a student. Well, I'll start by saying, I've said it today, there's several issues. Uh, I, you know, I think we can always be more efficient, and, and, I, and I don't think anybody on this stage would say we can't try to be more efficient in the way we spend money. But you've got growth that you're not funding. It's hard to fund growth. You've got uh, and, and keep the rate the same rate of uh, of, of uh, reimbursement for formula credit hours. Uh, then you have seven hundred over seven hundred million in uh, exemptions and set asides, or exemptions, just exemptions, not even set asides in tuition. So you have all of those things together. They are a cost driver. That they are significant cost drivers from a biennial perspective. And so you know, I think again. I, I will emphasize that while we have gone up in tuition in Texas, uh, the, the designated tuition went up less than the statutory tuition was going up prior to that. And we rank, we're right in the median uh, in, the, in the country, and I think the legislature has really pushed on higher education to maintain. We have this dialogue, it's a very serious dialogue with, the legis with, the, with our legislators every year about how to do that, and I anticipate we'll have that same dialogue. Senator Sellier has a a bill that I think is very interesting in that it is a it is a performance-based tuition bill, and I think higher ed has had a lot of interest in looking at that sort of a of a concept as well. So, you know, I'm, we're trying, and, yes, and I, I think we've we've been we've had a, a we've had success. I think we all want to do better, though. Absolutely, thank you. So I think we're probably only going to have time for two more questions. So I apologize. I really appreciate you engaging. Wish we could get to all of you, but Hi, my name is Fook Bui. I actually work at UT Austin, and I have a pretty UT Austin-specific question. Um, so we have a lot of great succession initiatives aimed at lower-income students, and we always are very proud of our increase in the four-year graduation rate. Um, but in order to achieve that, there were also some things that needed to be discussed, um, specifically in the financial aid office, as a former financial aid officer. Um, in order to kind of achieve that, we also kind of started gearing our financial aid less towards lower income students and more towards middle income students um, because we knew that they were not going to um, graduate within the four years. And because I disagreed with that so much, uh, I actually left the office. And so I wanted to know um, what are your thoughts about that and, you know, how do we... Um, ensure that we're getting an, an education for our lower income students without, and achieving our 60-30 goal without leaving them to graduate with a lot of debt. Answer this right and you can get him back. Okay, <laughs> uh, and I look forward to it. It sounds like, what, what's your major? No, I, I graduated. Oh, graduated. Yeah, okay. I, I used okay. to work in the financial aid office financial right aid. when we started emphasizing the four-year graduation rate a lot. So well, I think the four-year graduation rate is is important, mm -hmm. uh, and and our our goal is when we admit a student, we want everyone to graduate. Now that's not always going to happen. Yeah. Uh, but as we reach try to reach our goal of seventy percent in four years, our our goal for six-year graduation rate is, which is the national reporting standard, is over eighty-five percent. Uh, that's getting to some of the best universities in the country. And a lot of the, a lot of the student success initiatives, including financial, are targeted 
towards uh, students whose family income is less than 60,000 a year. Now the median family income in Texas is what, around 56,000 a year, right. something about that. So that uh, covers uh, the median family income in Texas. Uh, the net tuition uh, that students from uh, families under $60,000 a year pay has actually gone down since 2003 in inflation-adjusted uh, dollars. And that's from a variety of sources, uh, federal, primarily Pell Grants, uh, Texas Grants, and, and institutional grants. And for most, uh, for many students, if not most students from families under 60000 uh, they're not paying any tuition, and there's some grants towards covering the cost. So. Uh, our goal is to get the, the, the students here and, uh, and have, give them the tools to be successful. And the finances are an important part of it. Yeah. All right, uh, well, uh, yes. real, real quickly. Uh, well, I can't do this real quickly. Uh, this, uh, what you've just said, is something I really want to look into. It's really troubling for me if you're telling me that the poorest students who may not be believed to be uh, going to get out of school in four years or somehow, for lack of a better term, uh, well, I won't use that term, just come see me because okay. I find that troubling and it looks, it, 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 it goes to the whole issue that I'm studying in my office with Commissioner Peretti's right now, why poor students are coming out with more debt. And if we're not giving them financial aid, we're forcing them into the loan, that may be part of the problem. So David, give him the card, please. And, and we have, over time, set up things like Texas grants yeah. where they're not as open-ended, yeah. where there's an incentive there to, to get out in a certain period of time. So we can use that chair for the next student who of also course. needs financial aid. Mm -hmm. I don't think there's a bias or discriminator there, necessarily. Uh, for middle income over over lower income, I don't think anybody does that. Mm -hmm. It it happens sometimes. But if you were there and you say it happened, I want to know more. Okay. Okay. Thank, Thank you. you. All right. Last question. Hello, I'm Daniel. Um, I see you're an advisor for the Student Success Initiatives here at UT Austin. Specifically, I work with the University Innovation Alliance with the MAPS Project. Now, the MAPS Project is the first ever empirical evidence of academic advising to track down students, why they come intervention-wise to see us as advisors, as well as how we can track and help them graduate in four years better using a four-year degree map. Um, my question is, is that knowing this study, hopefully it's the first ever empirical study of advising practices in four years, that will come out in four years. But I would want to say that when it comes to growth, or we're talking about growth in universities, that could be an issue when it comes to graduation in four years, the success rate. Um, when it comes to uh, decentralization, as well as the big communication issues with this growth of a university, as well as um, when it comes to a big caseload of advisors to students, when it ranges from maybe 450 students to one advisor. And although it's really intense for first-generation students, not being able, that I work with especially, might not be able to have this sort of personable sort of caseload for that. I would say with the growth of universities, how can you all combat these issues for staff within universities? Well, first of all, thank you for doing that. I think this is uh, one of our premier programs in, in student success. Uh, it is a cost, right? as, as representative talked about, it does add cost. Um, and one of the, but it's also one of scale too, and that's why one of the reasons that at least in this current time, the current environment, I haven't wanted to increase the enrollment at UT Austin. Nevertheless, we're admitting more students, 
and we're graduating more students. And it's, it's thanks to, to many, of the, many of the programs, such as, such as the one that you're uh, serving in. So thank you for that. What President Febus talks about is particularly important, and it's particularly applied to the big systems who have so much more money than everybody else. There's tremendous room of gro for growth. I happen to think the best opportunities, best empirically and, and dollar for dollar, is in the University of Texas Tyler, University of Texas Permian Basin, uh, Texas A&M International, where we're going to educate people for less money get more bang for the buck, and then spending that money not so much for growth in some instances, but for excellence in all the universities. And, and I think sometimes people look at growth in terms of, of a flagship issue. I don't really think it is. Thank you all very much. It's been a very good discussion. Thank you, Matthew.